Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to remind you that today's episode is part two of what I am calling the OCD mini-series. Last week I had on Dr. Liz McInvale, and today I have on Reverend Katie O'Dunn, and although their episodes are freestanding and independent from one another, I purposely put them back to back because I feel like they fit well together and play off one another. So if you have not already listened to last week's episode, please do so. Either pause this and go back to it or listen to it after Katie's episode today. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. I am super excited for today's episode. I have a very special guest, Katie O'Dunn. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to chat today. I am as well. So to kick us off, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm Katie O'Dunn. I'm an ordained minister. Um, Technically, Reverend Katie O'Dunn, but Katie is perfectly fine. I'm really, really informal. And um, I right now serve as a school chaplain. I have my Master of Divinity from Emory in, in theology and focus there around faith as well as, as public health and moved into an interfaith chaplaincy role where I've been for about um, seven years, working with students from all different faith backgrounds, um, helping students to engage with one another. So I get to do there a lot of grief and and trauma work, a lot of interfaith work bringing folks together, but also teaching um, teens comparative religions to help them understand and appreciate the traditions of one another. Um, So I work with about 2,700 kiddos who are Hindu and Buddhist and Sikh and Muslim Muslim and and beyond and Jewish and beyond and um, it's it's really neat to to get to to do that work um, and then on the other side I am an OCD advocate I have OCD and used to be incredibly private about that I know we're going to get into that story a little bit more today um, but really through a relapse decided to come out and be a little bit more public about that in my community. And from there, um, that's really grown into a place where I'm now leaving my role in chaplaincy to do things around OCD and and faith full time. I'm working on my doctorate and really um, trying to combine this space of being a member of the clergy with OCD who didn't want anyone to know to a space where folks really feel like they can have conversations about evidence-based treatment within faith communities. So what you're saying is you're not busy at all, (laughs) 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 
But I absolutely love the um, fact that you work with individuals from all different religious backgrounds, because I think, at least in my experience, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school, um, but I always tell people I feel very honored that my Catholic high school, we had to take world religion. So I learned about a variety of religions, which I feel like is not common for Catholic school. Um, And that honestly was the most insightful thing I could have probably gained with regard to faith and religion. So I love that you work with people of all different backgrounds. Yeah. And it's, it's really fun. Um, It's, it's really interesting looking back, especially now where I'm transitioning out of this role into kind of a mental health capacity. Um, I just hit where I've now taught over a thousand and twenty eighteen year olds in comparative religions, um, where I've gotten to walk, I've had the opportunity really to walk with so many kids from so many different faith traditions. And, um, I've learned so much from them as well. And we always come back to this, um, idea of empathy and really focusing on the idea that someone else might believe something different than what you believe, but what they believe is just as important to them as what you believe is to you. And that's a lot of the work that I carry into the mental health world and some of what we're going to be talking about today as well. I absolutely love that. So today we are going to be talking about OCD amongst a lot of other things. Um, And you mentioned that you have OCD. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your journey with OCD. Yeah, um, absolutely. So like many folks with OCD, it has been a long journey with lots of twists and turns and, and changes um, I often tell folks in advocacy that I've pr- hit pretty much every OCD subtype in, in existence throughout my life. Um, and the, the earliest memories that I have related to OCD were really back when I was eight years old and going around and touching things in a particular order, feeling like it would keep loved ones safe. And then um, about that time, I lost my aunt to cancer. And it was the first time I really started having intrusive thoughts related to harm. And I was this eight-year-old who was getting citizenship awards at school, who wanted to be nice to everybody. And then at night, I was calling my parents into my room saying, what if my aunt died because of me? What if I'm a dangerous person? What if I do something bad? And my parents at that point considered them worries. They used to say, Katie has a lot of worries. So they took me to a therapist and that made a lot of sense to them. Um, unfortunately, that was a therapist who wasn't well-versed in OCD and who didn't know exposure and response prevention. And we did a lot of stuff that really wasn't all that helpful. That wasn't evidence-based. And um, as someone who was really dealing with scrupulosity at that time, I pretended I got better because I wanted the therapist to think that he was really good at his job. So we'd go and we'd play checkers and I'd say, oh, I feel better. It's gone. No more thoughts. I'm great moved on, all those boxes were checked. So moved throughout my life and kept going through all of these different spirals. Some things manifested in really unhealthy relationships, different ways that I was kind of trying to medicate all of these intrusive thoughts that were coming up, these worries, particularly about being a bad person. And by the time I got to college and grad school, I had really learned how to cope, but not in really effective ways. And um, I'm someone who throughout my life has been very high functioning when it comes to OCD. And um, I know sometimes that sounds really, really fantastic, but I think for me, it was really detrimental because I got so, so, so sick um, before I actually got treatment. 
where it got to the point where I was compulsing pretty much 20 hours out of the day, even if it was in my head, but was still able to be functioning and looking like um, I was, I was living my life. So getting into college and grad school, checking became a really big component for me where I was checking a lot of things that we think of um, as pretty common with OCD, oven, stoves, locks. Um, But in grad school, I was actually pursuing ministry. So I was at um, Emory University, Candler School of Theology, getting my Master of Divinity and was going through all sorts of different psych evaluations to become a minister. And I knew that I was experiencing OCD. I had taken enough. I was a human services and religious studies major in undergrad. I'd taken a lot of psych courses. I knew not really the treatment for OCD, but enough to know what was going on, but didn't want anyone to know. Um, I had a mentor at the time who said, if something comes back in your psych evaluation, you're not going to be ordained. So I didn't get treatment, didn't go to therapy and got really, really sick. And it got to the point in seminary that I I wasn't sleeping. I was going to the parking garage and checking cars at night. I was driving back to the churches I was serving to make sure the candles were blown out. I was taking pictures of, I mean, all kinds of stuff, driving back to every place I worked in the middle of the night and then trying to go to class. And at that point, again, I was really high functioning. I was really struggling, but I was getting A's and it looked like, oh, like she's, she's got it together. She's, she's fine. So I got into my first role in ministry as a school chaplain, where I am now about seven years ago and everything just completely exploded. And it was, um, I kind of hit that point, I think in my mid twenties, um, where, (laughs) Life really was hitting, but OCD kind of hit at the same time. And my OCD latched on to all new things that it had never hit on before. Um, and I started having really intense harm obsessions, really intense obsessions about my students, huge fears that I was this horrible person and not only worried that I was going to do something bad in the future, but worried like, what if I did something bad in the past and forgot about it? So my whole entire life became revolved around checking. And um, I was very, very fortunate at that point that my mom, who doesn't even live close to me, actually said, hey, I think you need to get into some treatment and actually found exposure and response prevention and said, I think this is what you need to be doing. Um, And I ended up finding a really awesome therapist, um, Shala Nicely, who very much brought me out of all of the things that I was experiencing through going through this treatment, through exposing myself to these fears and and not engaging in the compulsions that I had done for so long, Um, which felt completely, completely scary because I had spent my whole life trying to do things to alleviate my anxiety. And for the first time was being told, oh, you have to sit with these feelings and with these emotions, you have to habituate. It's like, oh, this is crazy, but it it wasn't. And I, I got better pretty fast. But unfortunately, just a few months after, um, she kind of kicked me out of treatment. She's like, okay, you're doing great. Like, you've got this. Go live your life. Um, In my role where I work with a lot of trauma and grief, we experienced back-to-back-to-back losses. And um, I lost a number of folks that were very, very important to me, including students and faculty members, um, some to suicide, some to drug overdose. Um, And in particular, I lost my favorite student who had just graduated um, and I had just given an award to a few months before. And I felt like my life 
completely crumbled. Um, and again, I wasn't caring for myself. I was trying to take care of this community of thousands of people trying to speak on these tragedies. And um, I think in the midst of all of that, it was just such a, a breeding ground for my OCD to really come back and latch on like it had never done before. So ended up getting to a space where I was blaming myself for every loss that I had experienced and thinking I tangibly must be responsible for these, for these losses. I must've done horrible things. I must've forgotten about them became this entire compulsive loop where just like most folks with OCD, I knew on a logical level, all of the things that I was thinking were completely irrational, but the more I engaged in compulsions, the more it felt like, well, I could be this horrible person pretending to be a minister and everything bad that's happened this year could be my fault. So eventually got to the point where I was compulsing in my head pretty much 24 seven, engaging with kids during the day at school and then going home and trying to not call the police on myself at night after being a chaplain all day. Ended up back in treatment actually with Shala and um, it was really, she, she very much saved my life through, through both exposure and response prevention and acceptance and commitment therapy, where um, I was fortunate to be able to continue to serve in my role, do really intensive treatment at night and get to a place which took quite a while for me, but eventually get to a place where I was willing to risk all of the scary stuff being true for a chance at the life that um, I wanted and a chance for the life that I believe I was created to have and that, that I deserved that I didn't think I deserved for most of my life and um, was finally able to take the leap as a part of my treatment to accept the uncertainty and to claim that life. Um, and that's how I ended up in advocacy and, and all of these other things. Yeah. Thank you so much, Katie, for sharing your story. I was writing down notes. I have so many thoughts. I'm not going to talk about all my thoughts. <laughs> um, but one thing I appreciate you talking about is being high functioning because whether it's OCD, depression, anxiety, so many people are high functioning, meaning exactly what you said. They can go to their day job on the outside. They appear like nothing is wrong and on the inside are tremendously struggling. And I think whether it's, you know, stigma from other people um, or just like internalized shame, because it's like, well, I'm still getting my work done. I'm still doing this. I'm still doing that. Those individuals that are high functioning, yourself included, typically don't get treatment until things are really, really bad. Because whether it's they feel like they don't deserve it or you convince yourself it's not as bad or whatever it is. So I do appreciate you highlighting that because I think it's something that's not talked about a lot. Yeah. I mean, I can think of, and I always use this example, speaking at really big commencement or baccalaureate events with literally 10 or 15,000 people and like looking out at a stadium and not being remotely nervous about what I was saying, but engaging in compulsions in my head to make sure that I hadn't hit someone with my car in the parking lot. Um, and it's really interesting to look back at those moments where the things that you would typically think of that would cause anxiety, I wasn't even present in those moments. I could do those things. I could make the speeches, but I, I wasn't living my life. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing you mentioned was 
basically being told if anything comes up on your psych eval that you're not going to be ordained, which kind of leads into something I wanted to ask you about because you are a chaplain. Mm -hmm. Do you mind talking about the intersection between faith and OCD? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that really is a big passion for me and, and where I'm shifting, shifting my life to now at this point. Um, so faith and faith and OCD, I, I often think that in, in OCD treatment, you actually have to have this component of faith in the treatment, right? You actually have to, to take this, this leap to be willing to do things that are really, really scary in order to, to reclaim your life. And Unfortunately, I think sometimes in different faith communities, there's this notion that you just aren't praying hard enough or you aren't aren't engaging in your religious practices in ways that are meaningful enough, that you're not connected enough to God and that that's why you're not getting better. And unfortunately, in my role as a chaplain, um, this is something I've seen for the last seven years that isn't unique to a particular faith community. I've seen this, again, with students who are Jewish and Christian and Muslim and Buddhist and Sikh, um, where there's this stigma around, well, if you just did this a little bit better, if you just connected with God, then things would be fine. And that simply isn't the case. It's one of one of the reasons that advocacy is so important to me because I want my students, I want all individuals in different faith traditions to know that faith and mental health do not have to be mutually exclusive, that you can engage deeply and in a meaningful way in your faith tradition and at the same time seek evidence-based treatment. Um, theologically, I tend to think that however you imagine God or imagine the divine, that if we're imagining a force that is all good and all loving and all powerful, it makes sense that that divine force created some pretty awesome clinicians who would be able to put together evidence-based treatments to help folks move into recovery and reclaim their beautiful lives. So I tend to fall back on the idea of the recovery trinity, that it's possible to have faith in yourself to have faith in treatment and to have faith in God, whatever that looks like for you all at the same time. And those things can fit together in a neat and in a beautiful way. Hello, would you like to learn to meditate? Or perhaps you've meditated for quite some time. I started around 50 years ago. As you know, meditation is good for lots including stress reduction, letting go of anxiety, self-exploration, and ultimately awakening. If meditation or awakening interests you, check out my podcasts on Awakening Together with William Cooper. All of them are free. Both the description and the link are in the show notes of this podcast. I love all that. And I know you mentioned earlier when you were introducing yourself, as well as when we were talking a little bit about like ideas for the podcast that you are very passionate about helping bridge that gap between uh, clinicians, faith leaders, destigmatizing um, mental health, um, evidence-based treatments and diverse faith communities. So you just talked a little bit about the stigma. and a little bit about how kind of you view things, but do you mind speaking about what you're doing currently to break the stigma in faith communities or what you have done in the past? 
Yeah. So it's, it's really exciting. There's a lot of new things right now that are happening. So it's kind of neat to talk about this because I feel like, um, even in the next couple months, things are going to continue to shift and change. Um, for me, it was really just, um, a year ago that I got really, really involved with the international OCD foundation as one of their advocates and started to jump into their faith and OCD programming. Cause they wanted to do some stuff around, around faith. And I was like, Oh, I'm a faith leader. I have OCD. This sounds great. Like, let, let's do this thing. And, um, it um, really, really took off. It went from this space where there were three of us on a task force and I put together this whole big needs assessment and all sorts of stuff to um, leading this really awesome task force of clinicians and faith leaders from different traditions, um, putting together a huge website for the IOCDF that's getting ready to come out that offers resources for clinicians and for faith leaders and individuals with OCD and different faith traditions to bridge these gaps very much from some pretty amazing clinicians that I've had the pleasure of, of working with, um, to really have some concrete resources um, and then even last May, putting together just a few months after I started working with them, our first faith and OCD conference, where we had a thousand folks sign up virtually and um, was pretty, pretty neat to, again, really work to hear from folks from different faith traditions and hear from clinicians and, and, and um, faith leaders all at the same time. So all of this stuff started happening and I had the pleasure of um, getting to work with a lot of awesome folks and, and really facilitate some of this work, um, ended up um, becoming a lead advocate with the IOCDF and kind of continuing to spearhead some of this. And then started um, getting kind of phone calls from clinicians and from clinics saying like, hey, I'm struggling with a client that um, I don't totally understand their faith tradition. I don't totally understand how their religious scrupulosity is manifesting. Can you help me? You have this big background in interfaith. You understand these different faith traditions. You've been teaching this, you know, OCD. Can you help me figure out how to get through to this person? Can you help me figure out how to develop exposures, how to separate faith from OCD and how to engage in a way that's respectful and culturally competent, but still um, is fitting for the treatment? So I started getting those calls. I was like, oh, this is super fun. Like, I love this. And then um, it started to get bigger and it started to get bigger and started hearing from faith spaces too. And then started hearing from clinics that were like, hey, do you want to do trainings around this? Um, and got to the point where it became more than just a volunteer advocacy piece where um, it started to very much become a profession and a vocation in this, this interesting space where I realized I could use my skill set to bridge some of these gaps. So um, had some awesome folks um, that were connected to the IOCDF reach out to me and say, okay, there's this door open and you have an opportunity to do this work more full time and help to develop this for others. And you can either kind of take this leap now, going back to some of the leaps of faith we were talking about before, um, or, or not. So, um, back in just December, I made the official decision to leave my current role in school chaplaincy. We just made the announcement a couple weeks ago, um, which has been very emotional and, um, I'm shifting to move into what is becoming faith and mental health integrative services full-time where I'll be 
working um, directly with clients in conjunction with clinicians to kind of navigate this faith and OCD component, um, where I'll be working with clinicians to train and then faith leaders to train to bridge the gap. Um, and the big goal there, and I'm really clear with all of my clients about this, I'm huge on evidence-based treatment and for folks working with clinicians is everyone that I work with really needs to be in exposure and response prevention. They need to be doing that evidence-based treatment. They need to be working with a clinician where we can both sign releases, but that I can really help with that faith component and acknowledging that OCD isn't a faith issue, but faith is a really big value for so many individuals that you can seek to move towards as a part of this treatment that's really hard. Um, so as a part of that, I just um, started my doctorate at Vanderbilt in a new program on um, in integrative chaplaincy where we're using the intersection of faith and mental health as grounded by acceptance and commitment therapy. So that's really where a lot of kind of my, my stuff comes out of. And it's a combo program between the, the Dib school and psychologists and psychiatrists to kind of be trained in this intersection to do some of this cool work. So yeah, that's kind of how it all fits together for me right now. Like I'm just in awe of you, Katie. That's awesome. I'm excited. I'm really excited. I can tell. And like, I was just thinking so much because I mean, as somebody that lives in the South and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, when I've talked to other individuals who bring up faith and mental health, there is such a stigma. And I have seen so many times, even with individuals that come into my office and I work primarily with teenagers whose parents or grandparents, guardian, whoever's raising them will still, despite bringing them like, oh, they just need to pray harder mm -hmm. um, and, or whatever beliefs that just don't align with mental health or parents that are not going to be involved in their child's treatment because they don't believe in mental health, which never makes sense to me because we all have mental health. Yes. It's like we all have physical health. <laughs> um, and so the fact that you are doing so much work and like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just in awe and I have so many thoughts, but like so many thoughts and none are coming <laughs> at the same time, if that makes any sense. Well, and it's, it's kind of a new, and I'm still figuring it out too. And that's um, one of the things I've been super, even self-conscious about how I put it out there. Cause I want folks to know um, that I'm very, very much aware of the fact that there are faith leaders who have done things um, around counseling that have been super harmful and faith leaders, particularly in the area of religious scrupulosity, who have said, hey, we can fix this, or who have done it in coaching, but things that are not helpful. And I really want folks to know that that is, that is not what I'm doing. Um, I work with, end up working with clients kind of in three areas. And one of them is folks who are afraid to go to ERP and helping them get to the point that they trust seeing somebody who isn't a part of their faith tradition or that they stick with it, that they stay in that process and that they can continue to have this healthy relationship with faith, as opposed to feeling like they have to leave the tradition altogether. And I think kind of like with, um, when I have a client that comes that they're not engaging in ERP, I'm like, okay, we really need to get you in with, um, with a specialist. Um, I'm very well aware of the fact that just because I have OCD and I've been through that treatment, that's not my specialty. And mm -hmm. I think the reverse, um, is also really important. I think, Clinicians are, are so fantastic and, and so many are so well-versed in faith, but a lot of times that's because they're engaging in their own faith tradition. And just like you might want to have a specialist come in that really knows the treatment side of OCD, I think having someone who specializes in kind of the interfaith component 
can be really helpful, particularly for clients that have religious trauma. Um, so a lot of the work I end up doing is around um, even um, theological kind of flexibility and helping them to realize that there are different ways to approach their theology that might be healthy for them. So I always say, I will never impose my theology on someone, but the work that I do is really about helping them figure out what they believe mm-hmm. as it aligns with their treatment. I love that so much. And now I feel like I'm like totally changing topics after you <laughs> yeah. just gave that like whole beautiful, um, I don't want to call it a spiel because it wasn't a spiel, but like talking That's about everything fine, yeah. doing, but in addition to being a chaplain and an OCD advocate, you're also an athlete <laughs> because as I said at the beginning, clearly you're not busy at all. <laughs> So can you, we talked about the intersection between faith and OCD. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection between athletics and OCD? Yeah. So um, athletics, that's been a big piece for me for a long time. I was a division one runner at Elon and ran cross country and track there and then got pretty competitive in, in triathlon, raced short course triathlon for a long time, and then Ironman for quite a while. And now I've shifted back into the ultra marathon land. And for me, um, endurance athletics for better or for worse has really been a coping mechanism for me throughout my life with a lot of the things that I've navigated. Um, so much so that my graduate research the first time around was on the intersection between spirituality and endurance athletics and this idea that you can really connect with something outside of yourself by engaging in running and biking or in swimming. And, um, one of, one of the reasons that, I think endurance holds such a big place for me now with mental health is, or with my own mental health and my mental health struggles is that, um, I can look back on so many races again that I did where I completely missed the race, um, where I wasn't present. Um, I can think about one of the races that I was the sickest and this sounds completely absurd. Um, I raced an Ironman, which for folks that don't know, it's, it's really long. It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and 26.2 mile run. And this, um, particular one was in 2017 or 2018 up in Lake Placid. So you were doing it up mountains and actually fractured my femur and I ran 22 miles on a broken femur. And I remember pretty much none of the race because I was engaging in compulsions in my head the whole time, trying to make sure that I wasn't a bad person. And I can think back to those moments and there, there's so many emotions for me around that. And yet, um, even in those moments that I, I missed those races or missed those things that were important, um, I think endurance for me was always something that helped me get through from one day to the next until I was in a place that I could get treatment. And then it became for me very much a value of something that I wanted to be present and enjoy doing again in a way that I hadn't for a long time. So um, for me now, thankfully, I'm in a place that I'm healthy enough that I do enjoy it, Um, that going out for me and running in the woods is literally the most present thing that I do, where I feel like I can connect with God, where I feel like I can connect with a healthy kind of version of myself. Um, So kind of got into this whole ultra marathon thing um, at the beginning of the pandemic, thinking I wanted to pivot and do something different in endurance. And um, at the same time was hearing from a lot of folks that couldn't necessarily afford treatment. And um, 
it's something both in now my business and in advocacy that I hear almost every day from folks, which is I really want to engage in evidence-based treatment, but I can't afford it. Um, and wanted to do something about that and kind of hit me during a run of like, oh, I wonder if I could do something kind of cool with ultra marathon stuff around this. So um, long story short, ended up committing to racing um, 50 ultra marathons in 50 states for OCD and um, teaming up with, with no CD to, um, to pay for treatment for one client in each state who is seeking um, evidence-based treatment to pretty much pay for their, their whole experience with no CD. And then they agreed to match. So we got to a space where now we're able to pay for two folks in, in each state, wherever I kind of compete in that ultra marathon. So um, there's a goal of finishing them all before I'm 50. So it's about four a year and fundraising for four states a year to, by the end, um, have raised essentially um, $50,000 for folks seeking treatment. Um, and then they'll match and we'll get to pay for a hundred. So it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> like, I'm just listening to you. I'm like, when do you have time to like breathe with everything <laughs> you're doing? Um, that That's amazing. One thing you said that kind of stuck with me when you were talking about how athletics for you has changed over time, especially with regard to being more present is going back to something you said about getting your doctorate and act and act helping you um, when you were in your own therapy, in addition to ERP. And for those that aren't familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy or act present moment awareness is such a huge component. Um, to it. And that was just something that stuck out with me. And I don't know if that was like intentional from what you learned with ACT or if it was like, now I actually have the capacity to be present, but that was just something that really stuck out when you were sharing all of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it all, all came together at the right time. And I was somebody that, that ACT really helped as a turning point for my own journey with ERP. And it's been so neat now to be in a place where I get to work with folks and doing ACT and then I'm learning about ACT. That's actually been a, a crazy journey too. When I started this program in integrative chaplaincy at Vanderbilt, I didn't know that it was based in ACT. And then I, we got, we started like the first semester. I was like, oh my gosh, I literally did all of this in my own treatment. And now I'm looking at these spiritual components of it. It's been bananas. And my professors are folks, I was reading their books. It's been just the craziest experience. But, um, but yeah, I think all of that came together with running at the same time where I was learning these skills and these tools from ACT um, about what does it actually mean to engage in this moment? What does it mean to be present? What does it mean to move towards my values regardless of, of how I'm feeling? Um, and starting to do this ultra marathon thing where I run in the woods and it's like, oh, this all, it actually, it actually fits together. I can experience these five senses when I'm out in the woods. And um, that's been my motto with the 50 ultras in 50 states, we actually do um, hashtag running towards my values. So kind of a play on act of how do we run towards our values in, in the midst of whatever we're experiencing. I love that. Um, so we've mentioned OCD, we've mentioned faith, we've <laughs> mentioned athletics, and you have actually done some research on the intersection of all three. And you mentioned your research a little bit before. So do you mind telling us about your research on top of everything else that you've yeah. done? <laughs> so lots of different things unfolding. So, I mean, a while ago, kind of the, the athletic piece came in where um, 
gosh, that was back in 2015 that I was looking at kind of spirituality and, and, um, the connection to endurance athletics. And at that point, that was pretty neat. I was working with a group called Back of My Feet that uses um, running to empower folks experiencing homelessness. And there was this component for a lot of folks in, in that group who were just amazing of reconnecting with spirituality, reconnecting with God, but also um, gaining this healthier version of, of their mental health, overcoming addiction through endurance athletics as, as a part of that journey. And it was really, really neat to see how some of that unfolded in really, really tangible ways. Um, and then now I'm getting into some different research components, which I'm super, super pumped about. Um, so with, um, lots of different things I'm working with some folks, um, as, extensions of, of the IOCDF on research around um, clergy's understanding, um, clergy and different faith traditions and their understanding of religious scrupulosity and ability to um, recognize, refer, respond in appropriate ways. Um, and then in my doctorate, um, I'm planning on really focusing my research on what does it mean to um, adapt and explain exposure and response prevention in diverse religious communities so that it can be accessible and not, not seem scary for clinicians who are, or, or for um, faith leaders who are seeking to, to refer in that way. Um, and then the third piece that's um, upcoming is once I fully get this practice up and running, my, my plan is to try to develop um, a training module specifically for chaplains and for faith leaders who want to be able to get certified to understand OCD and to walk alongside clinicians in ways that are not reassuring, but are helping individuals move towards their values. So that's something I'm, I'm hopefully planning to work with the IOCDF on in, in the next couple years um, so that we can have lots of folks who are knowledgeable about faith and OCD doing that kind of work. I love it all. And I keep going back to like, you're not busy at all because you're doing <laughs> so much, but I can tell you are so passionate about it. everything you're it. doing. Um, so as we're nearing the end, if someone is listening and is struggling with OCD, whether it's broadly speaking or with managing faith and OCD simultaneously, what words of advice or encouragement do you have for them? Mm-hmm. You're not alone that the um, experiences that you are going through, those things that you're that you're feeling, those thoughts that you're having are are not unique to you. Um, every single person who has OCD feels like their thoughts are unique, like they're different um, or like the thoughts or the experiences that they're having are absolutely the worst. I, I remember when I was struggling the most, and I hear this from pretty much everybody I work with, um, I felt like if I could just have those obsessions that somebody else had, I would be fine. Just not these, just not the ones that I have. And, um, and that's really how it works. Your OCD tends to latch onto the things that are the most significant to you. And yet you are so much stronger than your OCD through evidence-based treatments like exposure and response prevention, or, or for anything that you're navigating, any mental health issue, through evidence-based treatment, through work with a therapist, through work with a clinician, you can reclaim that beautiful life that you both desire and deserve. And it might be hard. It's tricky. Exposure and response prevention. I did not think that I was going to ever be where I was. Folks used to tell me I was going to get better. And I'd be like, oh, yours probably isn't like mine. I'm not going to get there. But 
it isn't different. You are going to get better. You just have to take that leap. And I always come back to the last thing I'll say about that is um, the only thing that we know for certain is that if you have OCD, that thing that you're engaging in right now isn't getting you any closer to the life that you want. It's the only thing that I know for certain. So if you're willing to take the risk, that's the shot you have at moving towards the life that you both desire and deserve. I don't have any certainty outside of that. So I would encourage you to take that risk for that life that you were created to live. So beautiful. So wonderful. And Katie, I have loved this conversation so, so much and learning from you and hearing your story and everything you're doing. So I know we've covered a lot, but is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to touch on before we wrap up? You know, I, I don't know. I think we did cover a lot. This, this has been awesome. Just, just thank you. Um, and again, for folks listening, I guess just harping on one more time, the, the faith and OCD piece, wherever you are, whatever it is, whatever you believe in, um, faith and mental health do not have to be mutually exclusive and you are worthy of getting the treatment and getting the help that it is that you need. And, um, that doesn't make you weak. That actually makes you strong as you live into that beautiful life you were created to live. Thank you, Katie. So if people are listening and they're like, okay, I need to follow along with Katie's ultra marathons or everything she's doing for advocacy work, where can people connect with you? Yes. And I'm sure we can put, um, some of the pot, the links in the podcast to you. My um, I will. Instagram. Yeah. My Instagram is great place to connect with me. That's Rev K runs beyond OCD. And then, um, my website has pretty much everything about all of the faith and mental health stuff that I'm doing the 50 ultras and uh, I don't know, other, other research kind of random stuff. And that's revkadiodun.com. So I'll make sure that, that folks have that too. And, um, I am always more than happy to chat, um, for folks who are interested in, in reaching out. And, um, as you just want to know that you're not alone on the journey. Thank you. And I will definitely put those links in the show notes, um, along with any other links that you want with regard to like OCD websites and things like that. Um, so thank you once again, so much for joining, having this discussion, talking to me after your super long day that we talked about before hitting record. Um, this has been great. And I know so many people listening, whether they experience OCD or not are going to learn so much from you. So thank you for your time and knowledge and sharing everything you did. Thank you. And thank you all the listeners for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk. And I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.